Hello everybody and welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast. It's volume 10, issue 485. Today we're going to talk about chiefly two games, but also a few others that surround them. The mighty Sid Meier's Civilization and the sequel, Civ 2. Joining me, Leon Cox, in this issue are Chris O'Regan. Hello. And Joshua Garrity. Hello there. Welcome both. Here we are to talk about... I was going to say all of civilization, but we're not talking about all of civilization. <laughs> we decided that wouldn't be sensible. No. Much like the Pokemon issue that we did earlier this year, or Ryan did, uh, we're going to kind of talk about Gens 1 and 2 of civilization, which allows us to kind of go into a bit more depth and detail than if we'd done a, a full series show trying to take in all the twists and turns and changes that came up, came along with Civs 3, 4, 5 and 6 uh, and various other games. But as always, uh, we'll have a bit of a delve into the early days because it is 30 years since Civ 1 came out and 25 years since Civ 2 came out. What is Sid Meier's Civilization? You may be asking. It's possible you don't know. In the briefest possible terms, it is a top-down, or isometric in the case of the sequel, turn-based strategy game in which the player attempts to establish a civilization that will stand the test of time from 4000 BC to the 21st century and potentially beyond. But what are our histories with this venerable game? Let's start with the senior gentleman of the panel, Chris O'Regan. I don't have to take that, but it's true. It's literally true. true. It is actually true, yeah. Um, early 90s, obviously, when the game came out, but I didn't buy it on the PC because I didn't have a PC back then in the early 90s. Mm. I had an Amiga... 1200, I think, at the time that Civilization came out because they did release it on the regular Amiga, but uh, I was in the mighty HMV in Oxford Street, as was, which I still can't quite fathom, it's gone. Sadly, no longer there. Sadly, no longer there. I did think it was an impregnable fortress of awesomeness because it's one of my favourite stores on that street. It was like a an anchor point. You know, where am I relative to that store? Because it's so easy to see. Um, nevertheless, going up the escalator on the first floor. Sorry, second floor if you're American. And um, there was this little... This is towards the... I knew that the Amiga's life was coming to an end at this point, even though the 1200 relatively recently released. That's a separate issue for a separate time. And... The uh, the stores of uh, Amiga games was shrinking, I know. But nevertheless, I saw this big beige box. And written on it was this huge word, Civilization. But underneath it was even more interesting to me at the time. Because just like whenever you buy a new piece of hardware, it doesn't matter whether it's a, a Tiny 2600 or a PS5, you still do this. 
you'd buy a game on it because it has oh it's enhanced specifically for the thing that you now own or recently yeah, true, bought true. so it was like oh AGA version in big bright red letters on a white background yes and like oh oh there's a developer that actually cares about the AGA chipset <laughs> this is in the early days back in, later on they became more and more uh, prevalent right, amazingly and wow, I'll, I'll grab this. I've no, I never heard of it because I don't know. At the time, I wasn't really wasn't consuming a lot of media about games. Don't know why, but I really wasn't. I was just sort of um, still in the state of picking up a box and looking on the back of it, going, oh, "That looks interesting." Um, don't know why, but anyway, that aside, picked it up, looked at it, took it home, and I had no idea what I was facing. And what I was about to delve into, and and you know, minutes. I thought minutes flew by, turning into hours and days of me building up my my little civil my fledgling civilizations and and uh, creating. But we we'll talk about that later. But that's for me. That was my first. So pretty early on, I grabbed hold of this game, but it wasn't on the PC. It wasn't on the Amiga. I did eventually get the PC version, of course. Uh, and we'll you know again we'll talk about that later as well. But. That's it, and of course, you know, when Civ 2 arrived, I definitely got that when it came out because I was a massive Civilization fan. I was really excited to see what they were doing with it in its uh, more enhanced version on a more powerful PC, and mm. I wasn't disappointed. So uh, yeah. that's a pretty bland story, really, for me as regards to Civ 2. Civ 1 is a little bit more interesting, got a bit more meat to it. But Civ 2, I don't know, I just walked into a shop, bought the grey box, well, the brown box then, and walked out again, and that was that. Um, that's entirely... Yeah reasonable yeah that's how a lot of these histories start but yes and then you played it a lot presumably yeah, yeah. <laughs> the standard thing. oh yes yes i did yes yeah. all right uh and josh uh, i'm imagining that for you as a considerably younger gentleman this uh this your civ history started with a, a more a higher numbered civ and so you you may have been back to earlier civs for research purposes yeah so i was one uh, when the first civilization <laughs> came out, well, classic Kane and Rince opening. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. Um, okay. So it's fair to say I wasn't purchasing that game at that age. Little, um, little hard on the uh, <laughs> on the old eyes brain. Um, yeah. So my my first exposure to Civ was uh, Civ Five, um, and and its wow. expansions, um, and I've put roughly. I I brought it up on Steam just to get the the accurate number. I've put about 185 hours into Civ Five, mainly because it came out 10 years ago and I was in my yes. early 20s. So, of course, I had a lot of time to kill. Yeah. Um, and um, I, but I I I really fell in love with Civ Five. Um, mm. it, it you know not just as a single player experience, but I played it a lot with my uni friends at the time as well in the. The weird multiplayer setup they have for for mm. the the more recent entries, um, but I never really I've never gone back. Like I I appreciate that Civ Four is uh, an entry that's really highly regarded. Um, yeah. I've I've never uh, gone back to it. I have played Civ Six, um, but nowhere the uh, the hour count is not even close to what I put into uh, Civ Five. Life so, is yeah. different now. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
So I I went back um, to this, um, and I will admit to the morally grey activity of emulation. So uh, I... it's 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 actually completely fine because Civs one and two are abandonware, so you can oh, play okay. them however you want, and okay. it's all legally fine. Well, good. I would feel less morally grey then. Um, you are so not I... in any way grey. Um, uh, I am. A bright light, um, then. Um, so yeah, I, I emulated both um, Civ 1 and 2. Um, I played through one campaign each for both of those games, and I will talk cool. about my experiences in a bit. Yeah, and the good thing is that essentially, the, because the game came out really quite fully formed, Yeah, even with the first one, even the fact that you've played 185 hours of Civ Five, you kind of knew what I to knew expect. What I was getting it, into. it was actually there. There were probably less. I know that for the for the for the super fans of the series, and obviously we would and will get into this if we ever cover further iterations. There are, of course, myriad changes, especially obviously audio visually, but also to the engine, the mechanics, the some of the the subtleties of the gameplay do change as the series goes along. But the fundamentals, the core idea is mm. basically identical in Civ, Civs 5 and 6 to what it was in, in Civ 1, which is quite handy. Absolutely, yeah. My history with Civ is that I do remember, I, I, unlike Chris, I was consuming, voraciously consuming all computer and video game media at this time in history in 1991. I was a, a rabid Amiga user and Mega Drive, uh, and I bought dozens of magazines every month which was how we used to get our information about video games in the old days and i remember civ being reviewed in some of the multi-format i didn't buy any pc only gaming mags at this point not even sure how many there were but uh but i remember civ one getting great notices in multi-format mags and for me i'd long had an association with strategy and tactical games war games and, and other such things I'd always thought of them as being very difficult to get into, extremely dry and complicated, and to be honest, not really that appealing to me. However, I was a fan of Microprose's output. And by the way, listener, if I do say Microsoft at any point instead of Microprose during this show, I apologize. Microprose is the label we'll be talking about mainly, but since then it's been overwritten somewhat in my brain by the unrelated company Microsoft. Uh, but yeah, Microprose had already made a bunch of games that I was into, and uh, Sid Meier himself had been involved in some of those, Solo Flight, F F-15, Strike Eagle, Silent Service, and so on and so forth. And so I was interested in this to an extent. The Amiga version came along, and I was somebody who didn't, I didn't pirate Amiga games. I, I used to go and buy the big box releases, and... I don't think I bought this one. I'm pretty sure my girlfriend bought this one. She was more interested in it than I was. I think I was a little concerned that I might dabble with it and you know, kind of not, you know, not fully commit to it. Uh, but yeah, she she picked it up and played a ton of it. Uh, and I inevitably got kind of drawn in as well. But I'll be honest, I didn't play Amiga Civ as much as I did play Civ 2 on the PS1. Um, because I didn't have a gaming PC in the mid-90s. My friend Jim showed me Civ 2, and 
while we'd enjoyed the Amiga version and it was the pre-AGA version that we had, I did I do remember looking at the AGA version in shops and I had the similar thing that Chris was saying about, ooh, this will have more colours because my Amiga can now do more colours. I had an A1200 by this point, but uh, but I couldn't justify buying it again for 35 quid or whatever at the time. So I remember in 96 then, having played a little Civ 1, uh, seeing my friend Jim with his then top-tier PC rig, which could run Quake. It's the same one I, I mentioned on, on our recent Quake podcast, running this Civ 2, which looked so much prettier than the original did on my Amiga. Everything about it looked more inviting, more uh, slicker uh, and cleaner and smoother. Uh, you know, the, the Amiga version ran at an okay pace, as I recall. It wasn't an XCOM situation where it was 20 minutes for turns and things, if I recall. But uh, but it was it was just a little bit slow and sticky compared to, you know, uh, it was I think it was built on a 386 PC, the, the PC original of Civ and then obviously ported by a different team over to the Amiga as these things were. But yeah, seeing the 486 or whatever it would have been, uh, Civ 2 on my friend's PC made me desire it. Uh, but of course, yeah, didn't have a thousand quid or whatever it would have cost me equivalent to two and a half thousand quid now a gaming rig so i waited patiently for the ps1 version to come out and i ended up playing a lot of that uh since then i've played more more civs different versions obviously you just these days you just end up with the library of them on your pc they gave away civ 6 on the epic game store not so long ago and i already had it on switch um and yeah as i say the good good fun thing about this show is that Everything we're talking about is uh, is available on myabandonware.com, I think is the uh, is the website. So you can just with a bit of jiggery pokery, you'll need to use DOSBox and uh, and or mount the CD image and use a virtual CD drive and this kind of thing to play them. But with a little bit of fiddling about, you can uh, you can get them up and running with absolutely no qualms whatsoever. Uh, I've been playing, uh, I've been back to, to, yeah, I've been doing exactly that with, with these games as well, but I've actually put most time into Free Civ, which we'll talk about later, which is based on Civ 2 and is, yeah, again, completely free and legal. So yeah, Microprose was the developer, the studio that was set up in the early mid 80s, about 83, I think, by a former US Air Force dude, Major Wild Bill Steely and Sid Meier himself. Microprose published uh, the games themselves. As I say, Sid Meier had previously worked on flight games, which was Microprose's stock in trade, their bread and butter, Hellcat Ace and Spitfire Ace, uh, things like that. Later on to F-19 Stealth Fighter, which was you know absolutely raved about at the time. And then he made a game called Railroad Tycoon, which would be the kind of precursor to Civilization. Obviously, it's a, a slightly different view on things. It was about creating an empire of railways, rather than an entire civilization but uh, but it had you know it had the map and it had the some of the sort of fundamental strategy type elements of that co-creator of civ 1 although he doesn't get his name on the box was one Bruce Campbell Shelley who was formerly of Avalon Hill who were the people who made the civilization board game more of which later and he went on to direct Age of Empires with Ensemble Studios for Microsoft yes Microsoft 
And obviously that series took a, a more zoomed in view on similar subject matter, but it was more more of a war game, I suppose, but also very accessible. And obviously that series ended up with well, it's still going, isn't it? Uh, I think there's a fourth one coming out. You can play. Was it? I forget where, where they're up to. Is the third one recent? Um, they're all on Game Pass anyway. Uh, so Age of Empires is a, a kind of sister series uh, in a way spin off. Maybe we should call it. Uh, Sid Meier programmed the game himself. There's some nice footage of him out there actually fiddling around with the original computer on which he coded the prototype Civ. And it was released in September 1991, hence us making this show now. The average review score for the game at the time was around 89%. Sales-wise, Bruce Shelley stated in a 2016 interview that Civ had sold around 1.5 million copies, according to Wikipedia. But who knows how many people have actually played it because piracy was obviously incredibly rife for these kinds of games on floppy disks back in uh, back in the day. Plus, you can just download it and play it for free now. So, but yeah, it sold it sold a decent amount. It was a game that apparently internally Micropros didn't have a huge amount of confidence in. They didn't think it was a very you know necessarily a very appealing or sexy title for the shelves, but. Uh, I think it grew as much as anything by the word of mouth, the uh, the one more turn factor that we'll uh, that we'll talk about. So you start with simple menus, uh, just not even a very neat or tidy font. It's all kind of looks a bit scruffy and scrappy. And to be honest, even playing it back in 1992 or whenever I first played it, it did then. It, uh, it you could see that this was a game perhaps that wasn't. Uh, I guess even though it came out on a on a well established and and well known label, it hearing from Maya now, it is uh, he he said it was essentially it was just him and his colleague like it was a two person job. This was not a big studio production. Uh, this was kind of a, a passion project um, while he was doing other things for Micropros that they were more interested in. It sound, the story sounded a bit like when we were talking about uh, Link's Awakening on the Game Boy, that, uh, that sort of, this is the, this is the thing that the, the coders want to make and the, and the people at the studio want to make, but actually their bosses are saying, no, you need to do this and this, and these, these, these take higher priority. But, but these games are being kind of coded in the background because, because they have to, these creators kind of have to get them out. But for all that, yeah, uh, it's, Again, compared to things that have gone before, and you can just use keys, but you can use mouse and keys, which, uh, which you know, was uh, exciting at the time. Um, you get to choose to play on the Earth, or you can play a customised or random, uh, well, procedurally generated world, I suppose. Uh, you can actually fiddle around with some of the options, such as the, the, the sizes of the land masses, the temperature and the climate and the age of the very planet on which you start building and then you've got your difficulty options chieftain warlord prince king and emperor don't go anywhere near <laughs> the top end there until is, you've been there, playing yeah there is another one in Civ 2 but we'll talk about it later but yeah there, there's the and it look thinking about it, i just want to sort of touch on that it's only a two-person project having now played it recently because at the time it, mm. it, yeah it feels like it it feels a lot of this like <laughs> this is this is like placeholder Art, I don't know. You know, it just feels that, ha, huh, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, and obviously I think from the consumer's perception point of view, the fact that it came in this lovely big 
dark charcoal gray box with a you know a nicely designed sleeve over the top and a big old fat manual and everything that kind of elevated the feel of the product of what you were getting yeah but actually and and of course the fact that the yeah a, you know a bit like elite or something the the fact that what you were getting as your actual experience was so vast and so endless and so wide reaching that kind of the fact that yeah i i don't think we thought about things in quite the same way back then like i wouldn't have just been thinking well yeah this is obviously a two man project you know i didn't sort of identify games in that way as a 19 year old or whatever 20 year old but yeah looking back at it now it it does have that sort of uh, that ring about it and you can see that you know the the leaps to civ 2 albeit it's 5 years later uh, you can tell that's much more of a studio production than a passion project, I suppose. Indeed. And also, indeed, a leap was made by two people as well, so it's a good simile. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Just uh, 10 civilizations in the first game. There's a lot more than that in uh, in current civs. They add some more civ 2 as well. You can only have between three and seven inclusive in your game. The Romans, the Babylonians, the Germans, the Egyptians, the Americans, the Russians, the Zulus, the French, the Aztecs, and the Chinese. None of the Brits made the cut at this point. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you could go earlier with, uh, with the Romans. Um, and, of course, each of them has, uh, I suppose, what would you call them? Um, perks? No. Uh, buffs? I don't know. They've each got kind of little... Uh, there are differences. There are reasons to choose your sieve carefully in terms of the kind of victory perhaps you're going to try to go for. They had special unique skills, didn't they? And certain, not unique skills, but certain tropes. Or not, well, they had knowledge that knowledge, the others yes. didn't have. That's so they used, it. That's yeah. it. That's it. They had early knowledge that you could start, you know, you'd, oh, look, I've got horse riding. And then you've got these loads and loads of the riders of Rohan rolling across the fields. Yeah, I, I think it that choice matters quite significantly in the early game, but as the game mm. goes on, it yeah. matters. Matter, yeah, because all the civilizations eventually become pretty uniform in yeah. the way they operate. Yes, yeah, that is true. I think uh, probably by design, but I suppose it's yeah. I mean, it makes sense with the the sharing of global knowledge uh, and so on. Uh, and I, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a big topic, um, but I suppose it does already start to make me think about the the sort of the relationship between Civ and history in terms of, I think, in some ways, it does quite an amazing job of sort of uh, getting you getting the player to think about how things came about. Uh, Maya said that, you know, the, the, the tech tree was based on on this history book he had basically that sort of showed how all these things you know kind of branched off from one another and led led to new discoveries but there's also the feeling that it's it is it is ultimately just a game like the the, the this game will not actually show you what happened throughout history especially not with all the player and ai intervention that comes about it will inevitably play out very differently to the actual history of the world yeah, there's the conceit that your civilization stands the test of time for thousands of years. Um, but then again, you could argue it um, it does demonstrate, you know, you remain leader throughout this, like, this, like ageless 
Um, well, yeah, it doesn't even really are. make it clear who you are. Like no, you're no. some kind of some it's it's you know, you yeah. could say it's a god sim. This was post populous, but you're not yeah. really a god because you don't have any godly powers. You're more like a you're more like an upper level manager yeah. <laughs> of a yeah. civilization. They do give you a nice palace, though, which you can decorate. That's nice. In two. Yes. Yeah. No, no such no such niceries in the first one. Uh, in the original manual, the Turks are described as one of the available civilizations, but they were replaced by the Germans during development. I don't know why, according to Wikipedia. So I've already mentioned the tech tree, which is perhaps forms the web on which kind of civilization lies. Uh, it's worth saying that megalomania from Sensible Software actually kind of did it first, and or at least they got to market first. But this, I think, was genuinely a case of two different games being developed in completely different parts of the world. And, you know, at the same time, one just happened to come out first. Megalomania, of course, got uh, kind of commercially buried due to its relationship with um, Mirasoft. So that kind of, yeah, and obviously uh, it probably wouldn't have been that big a deal in America anyway, whereas uh, because it was uh, initially an Amiga and possibly ST game, whereas Civ was was a MS-DOS game, which was a much bigger deal uh, on it on the other side of the Atlantic. But the tech tree uh, is still, again, uh, like yeah, what the entire Civ experience kind of hangs on more than anything. And yeah. I have to say, I still, playing it even today, I get this constant sense of both anxiety and analysis paralysis that I'm going <laughs> down the wrong path, always. That's interesting, because yeah. I have a more... Because I played a lot of Master of Orion, the first one, which is even more anchored around that. If you make one, one false move, it's yeah. dead man walking. Like, oh, that's it. Right. You've really yeah. screwed up now. To the point where you have to study that whole web and go, I want photon phases. I definitely yeah. want those. Right. But I need to do this. And if I don't do this now, I'm knackered. So, yeah. whereas in. Civ, I'm very much emotionally detached from it to the okay. point where I say, am I going to get militaristic or am I going to be more philosophical and dip dipl diplomatic? That's how I treat it. So, Well, I think that's not, I think that's a lovely thing about the game, but I think that my my brain, especially if I'm playing, you know, playing multiple AIs, I'm always assuming, and, and again, this, you know, this could be argued that is, is a flaw of the Civ experience, is that it always feels like we're getting into this rather earlier than I was planning, but it's so relevant to my experience. I always feel like I want to play the game, be the be the god or upper manager that I would like to to see in the world, which is science based, literate, liberal, peaceful, all these things. But I always feel like I'm just going to get railroaded into being another warmonger by this game. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. It's the the um warmongering destructive is quite entertaining it's got to be said um oh i'm not saying don't you know i'm yeah. this is the thing like maybe yeah. i should i should role play it more and actually just it, it, this is this is the thing like you can play this game with a strategy to win and there are different win conditions yes but you can also uh you can also just play it for the fun of seeing what will happen like it's a game yeah. that exists in 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 that space but again i i worry that especially with the earlier install installments of the game it does feel like it is usually at some point going to boil down there's like some of the some of the uh other sibs are just going to be aggressive right yeah 
And and I think especially with these early entries, um, there's less of a feeling of consequence um, to your actual populace with mm-hmm. the decisions that you make. Right. Um, obviously, there are things here and there that happen, but you compare it to later civs where you have revolutions, like um, you have to like change policies based on what they, you know, how they react to things, like get them different amenities, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Whereas here, I feel a little bit more detached. They just feel like robots that kind of serve my, you know, serve my whim. Um, and there is a temptation to become really cynical about mm. the resources that you see on the board, and and ultimately, you know, it, it's with these early these early games, especially, like going full militaristic is almost the path of least resistance. Right. Exactly. Um, if you go down, it's it, it does feel very much like you know the the whole thing with Yoda and Star Wars. You know, the dark <laughs> side is the easier path, but yeah. the light side is harder, but ultimately more fulfilling. Right. Like you can do the science victory, you can do all of that stuff, but you are in for a much rougher ride. And I just feel like the you know both Civ One and Civ Two don't incentivize you to do it in the same way that the later games do. Yeah. I guess that's the thing. Like I've been trying to be more pragmatic about it. Like it's it, it it's that as I say, you know, I I you know, dream of a utopia effectively, uh, where you know it's it yeah it's we're free of conflict and we're free of imbalance and all those things, but. I guess the way to go into each game is assuming that other people will not go into it with that way, and as such, it would be it would be sensible to protect oneself from other people to try to maintain your own peace, even if you can't, even if you choose not to be outwardly aggressive to other people, uh, you can at least protect your own people. But you see, even that it's like it's creating borders and others and and things like that and and i know i I realize you know to to some listeners this will sound like a load of lefty hippie nonsense but i i quite like the idea of the game being a little more flexible in that regard um yeah and certainly the later versions of the game which you can't ignore we've mentioned already but it's not the topic of this show they do eventually expand on that because there's i think there's sort of uh they desperately try to do this in original Civ by having diplomacy, having your ability to actually massage your your neighbours to so they don't immediately stomp all over you, uh, while, while being clever yeah. about it. Mm. It's not nearly nearly as advanced or as complex or indeed as interesting as the later versions. And I'm very happy to see as the years went on that they did lean into more of that more nuanced, more interesting aspect of uh, human civilization rather than let's just blow everything up. But but something that I I feel the need to point out at this point, as much as you know the later games flesh this stuff out and and make certain paths more viable, the thing that surprised me is that the basic skeleton of civilization is all here: um, the diplomacy, the being able to negotiate with your neighbors, um, the fact that the science victory is even at all possible. All of that stuff, like the fact that, like, it really took me aback to be honest. Going back to this, as much as it is a you know bare bones basic version of the game that you know the game that I love, um, 
the fact that they managed to fit all of this complexity, all of this, the, the nuance that they were capable of at this mm. point in time is a really impress- impressive achievement. Let's talk about the the visuals as well. So, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a plain looking game, I would say, uh, kindly. I don't think it's, I don't think, I think maybe some of the fonts and stuff are ugly into my eyes, but I think mainly like the actual game map is perfectly easy on the eye. You've got some uh, very limited uh, sort of terrain visuals, which give you a basic idea of the kind of land you're on and stuff like that. Um, it, I think once you've explored a good chunk of the map and it's all laid out there, it still looks perfectly okay. It's obviously very low res and yeah, it's uh, there's lack of animation. I think in the original game, it's quite tricky. Just you mentioned the tiles. It's quite hard just kind of learning what all the different tiles are. Uh, there's a lot of different things represented by a fairly rudimentary set of visuals but uh but yeah civ one is probably probably not the version you'd play for uh for looks now and as i say even playing it back in 1992 it was not a game you were playing to show off the graphics capabilities of even your amiga yes, it was AGA. <laughs> no, no um <laughs> even did, then yeah i mean the, the big difference between those two by the way is the number of colors on the screen absolutely right the original amiga version very washed out it's only 16 colors it really didn't work and then the AGA is like full colour, so all the washing out gone. It actually makes all the proper textures mirrored very much the DOS version. Yeah, and that's basically it. But yeah, um, I think big the issue I had, especially playing it recently, was the font, the ridiculous font in the men- in the menus. It's just like, why have you filled in the the the, the, what, the P's and the why? It doesn't. It's really very. I don't think it really did much for the function of the game. They needn't have gone that route. They could have been more clever about it. I don't know. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I personally liked the visual styling and I was quite used to the idea of the little, little chits with little icons on, but that was fine. I did differentiate. And I got quite excited when a new one appeared. Like, oh, it's a new boat. That's, that looks pretty. doesn't. It's just, but it was different. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, I do, but I do take a point that to the uninitiated, it was quite, uh, it's quite alien, quite odd looking. Josh, these graphics are nearly as old as you are. Who's who's um, aging better? Uh, me. Uh, no, <laughs> um, I. The thing for me um, is, I do care about personality and flair, um, even in in turn based strategy games. Yeah. I'm the so you know in XCOM two and and I believe. Um, so, yeah, no, I don't believe. I know for a fact. Mm-hmm. Civilization five and six allow you to turn off all the animations for the unit, so it's yeah, just sure. completely functional. Yeah. Um, I, 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 for my brain, I, I just could not do that because yeah. so much of what I, you know, draw out of the game on an emotional level comes out of like having those moments where in XCOM two you do a close-up pan of of your character doing a crack shot um, and the reaction from the alien um, of seeing your builders, you know, lift that pickaxe and, you know, suddenly a mine appears and all of that stuff. I like that stuff and it's really important to me. Um, So to have all that stripped away, even if the art direction is functional, as you say, it's, it's well made, it's just devoid of personality 
and um yeah it, it was missing that emotional connection that i feel with the the later entries and and i to be fair i get that uh, at least a taste of that pretty quickly um yes. in the sequel but yes. here it's entirely absent yeah very functional it does have the cinemas as i call them yeah. I, uh, which is when anything events happen people move into a creative village or you know whatever there's some but even again even for the time those screens were compared to other computer games that i was playing the graphics were incredibly simple not especially well drawn even certainly not spectacularly animated so they were even that even they you could they were beyond functional in a literal sense because they didn't the game didn't require them to exist but they were functional in the sense that they just gave you a sense that actually something was happening beyond just the simple flashing tiles on the screen and this is something that i've found interesting playing free civ which as i say is actually based on the the remake of civ 2 the test of time version in terms of the code base but because it's a free game uh, i guess and because it's for the kind of hardcore civ player fans it's got nothing like no cinematics whatsoever it's got some very it's got a handful of sound effects but there's no like literally all you get to tell you things have happened is a line of text in a message bo- in a message window and i can still get into the game of course it's still got the one more go-ish stuff but without those screens or little moments the the little animations telling you kind of hammering it home what's what's happening it does feel to me like a slightly less engaging or emotionally engaging experience there is um two more things that have a visual thing like uh, the, the most detailed visual aspect which i did find quite amusing and i liked it quite a lot was your advisors when they're standing behind you and stuff and your relative uh status whether you're you know what status you were whether you're a monarch monarch or a feudal lord or what have you um mm. evil stuff and there's also the 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 enemy lead what the, the enemies sorry there you go the the uh competing leaders <laughs> rivals, shall we say? Yeah. rivals yeah, that's all, yeah. yeah. They're, 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 they were very well detailed i was quite impressed with that um we can't ignore that that was they were nice sort of standees <laughs> what a bit of a, they they do mm. animate a little bit. Well, they didn't animate, but they depending on what they 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 because they had emotions, kind of like they were happy or yeah. angry or sad, mm. and uh, the, the the and their advisors behind them would reflect their emotions, of course, because they're a bunch of yes people. Agreed. I I think they're pools of water in a desert, though. If that yes. makes sense. Oh yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, we 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 will. We I look forward to talking about the advisors in the second game. One way in which I think the game, again, was ahead of its time in a lot of ways, and again, compared to some of its contemporaries that kind of left you floundering, very much a case of read the manual for this kind of game was often the case, often a very large, long manual that was, you know, take some time to get through and chew over and all that, you know, I'm not saying there's there's no merit to that. A lot of that stuff can be fun, but I think Civ is actually kind of ahead of its time with its tooltips and advisors and the civilopedia kind of actually having everything there within the software for you to look at and consult and actually giving you little prompts as to maybe thinking about what you should be doing next a lot of games of this era just wouldn't have had any of that stuff it would have been read the manual and work it out 
Yeah, I, I, that's one of the things that I marvelled at. Even still, I still read most of the manual anyway because it's really well written, fascinating, mm. and uh, there's also the uh, there's also the piracy thing on it as well. Like because uh, you did get oh, challenged, yeah. didn't you? After turn twenty, I think something like that, or thirty. Yeah, something like that. You were then challenged for your leadership, and you had to demonstrate your knowledge of technology and science by the icons, and you had to figure out which uh, which tree it was on. And then once you got it right, you moved on. That's right. Yes. Yeah. I and... found that really irritating, if I'm being <laughs> totally honest, because <laughs> um, like it felt like I was just being given a pop quiz in the middle of the game. Like I understand, like you know. You want to kind of push, um, you know, push the player and, and test their knowledge of the, you know, the the game you've created. But that felt a little bit, you know, on the surface, as it were. Did you it have felt like the developer just came up to you and said, "Right, thank you for playing the game for about half an hour. Uh, can you fill out this piece of paper for me?" And well, oh, by the way, you can't play the rest of the game until well, you do. I mean, yeah, I mean that's yeah, that's you have, you have to blame the pirates for that, though. Yeah, right? that's it's like, it's like this DRM because <laughs> all it was was you didn't really need to know what the tree was. All you need to do is match the icon to what was shown. In the manual, go to the manual, the icon match, and it told you exactly what the response was. I was going to say, Josh wouldn't have had the manual if he's no, playing this. I understand. So, but that's that's yeah. how it was working. That was how it was <laughs> yeah. working. Yeah, it was quite a common thing. Uh, and at least it wasn't one of those uh, black on brown, non-photocopiable <laughs> sheets. It's not quite or... as funny as the pirate wheel for Monkey Island. I'm well, sorry. No. That's, I think that's <laughs> many people's favourite. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, the game starts, as we said, in the year 4000 B.C., and runs all the way through to the 21st century. Time is non-literal very much. Uh, and this took me uh, quite a while to kind of get my head around. And the time compresses over the course of the game. So early turns take large chunks of years. And later in the game, does it go down to one year at a time? Not even that. I can't remember. Um, I don't think it's mechanic for partial years. In no, no, I don't think so. No. Uh, but yeah, it's um, it's it's an interesting concept that I think uh, it takes some getting to grips with, because you're thinking, you know, I'm I'm moving this unit of settlers uh, some miles away from the city, and uh, and twenty years passes or whatever. Yeah, uh, you have to kind of you have to kind of buy into the fact that this is not literal. It's sort of. Um, representative it did not your... wander the desert for 40 years <laughs> no that wouldn't have ended well probably no no uh, there's multiple terrains of course which was already at this point kind of a staple of a war game i don't i remember i had a what i believe is now quite a legendary war war game uh eastern front 1941 i think it was a it was the earliest kind of game of this nature that i played which was a yeah very 8-bit uh, strategy game set in the World War II with uh, tanks, Russia versus Germany kind of thing. And even back then, this was 1981, 2, 3, something like that. Different terrains had different properties uh, within a small set of parameters. But here you've got, uh, you've got a bunch of different terrains and different areas with uh, different cells. This is all grid-based, of course with uh, different properties, different amounts of production you can get from them, different types of production you can get from them. And I think it all just comes down to production in Civ 1, doesn't it? 
Yes, yes. I mean, there was the having to do um, sort of managing that side of things, but yes, it was all anchored around production. It's fairly, fairly sort of uh, fairly basic stuff. Units wise, there are you start with your your very simple, straightforward warriors and move up. And as of course, as time goes by, you end up with um, more sophisticated and technologically advanced units especially by the time you get to the the modern era as it was back then combat is a point of contention with the original game in particular and i think why most even kind of the hardcore civ C series fans and forgive me if i'm speaking out of turn for you here if you're listening as one of those uh would probably suggest that you start with Civ 2 rather than Civ 1 is because the combat in the first game is simply weighted dice rolls. Uh, D100 RNG, effectively. Yes, the the inevitable, you know, Sherman tank being, damn, you know, killed by pike people. Like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Could happen. Could this, happen. This, this feels very much like a system that would work and would be fun if this was a board game and you right. were playing with a bunch of friends because then you would have that moment where comedy. Yeah. Leon defeated me with uh, Pikeman uh, with my you know battalion of tanks. That would be funny, yeah. but in a single-player context, it's just <laughs> yeah. absolutely frustrating. Wow. It feels it's, like cheating, computer cheating. Yeah. Just to relate to XCOM again, it's up there with you know point black range, ninety yeah. percent chance of hitting, and you don't. It's like, yeah. Well, ninety percent is. is not one hundred percent. Not one hundred percent. Ten ten percent is bigger than people think. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the other uh, little element, which I think has been maintained possibly even expanded upon but is still again i think in free civ you can just switch these off and i think in the civ 2 um kind of you can basically access all the yeah all the all the buttons and turn things off and on as you want them barbarians are i suppose they're like the smash brothers items of uh, of civ in that none of the serious <laughs> players want them want them on but uh but the kind of the more casual players like the chaos of the barbarians uh t tell us about the barbarians and what they mean for the game they kind of just spawn randomly in various unpopulated areas and continue to do that from that same spot until you do something about it mm. um, and it's a way i believe I interpreted it, whether it was intentional or not, to force the players like, can you stop turtling? Look, I know building a new city after building your third is a bit of a pain, but you can't, you're going to have to expand and you can't go conquering people. So you're going to have to make a new city. Like, I haven't done one in a thousand years or rather not. Please do <laughs> it. And that's how I interpret it. Like, you're only going to quell this if you occupy this space. That's it. And that's how, and it, it, that kind of thing sadly fell in, and fed into Civ 2. I liked it. In fact, I've encountered it in other 4X games, such as especially the space ones, where they're saying, you know, if you really want to expand, and you know, you're going to have to control this sort of lawless part of space or, or the world if you're going to want to expand. Otherwise, they're going to keep coming. Because they do. They just spawn. There's no rhyme or reason for them. You don't know what their deal is or what they want to do. They just keep coming chaos yeah so yeah cities are a key part of the expansion and success the survival the longevity of your civilization i still don't know what the right number of cities to have is 
after playing Civ on and off various versions for three decades, I'm never sure what's spreading myself too thin, how far I should be sending my ships out to find new land and put new cities in different places. The more cities I have, the more out of control I feel in some ways. Like in some ways I feel it's good to to spread far and wide, uh, especially if you're going for the kind of game where you, you know, kind of are being a bit more, um, what's the word where if you're almost like, because uh, I think there, there are some mechanics, maybe in some of the versions where you're, you're almost like um, spreading your, your, your belief set, you're, you're kind of indoctrinating the rest of the, the world to your way of life, trying to convince people that, yours is the one true way to exist and all this kind of thing but um but i still like i i still find myself the the early game they give you you get these reports from the wider world sort of saying where you sit in the grand scheme of things on a number of different metrics and i don't know if this is just the way the game plays out but i always feel like i'm doing absolutely pathetically for a while near the beginning i don't know if it's weighted that way or possibly i'm just absolutely hopeless at the early game of civ uh, what should I be doing? I mean, I'm, I'm not suggesting that either of you is like a, a Civ Tatsujin, but uh, what are your personal kind of methodologies for expansion and city management? I, and I'm not sure, there are probably going to be Civ, more serious Civ players than me that are going to tell me that this strategy is stupid. Yeah, well. But I tend to view cities as having a particular speci- specialization. Mm. So this usually my main you know my first city ends up being the military hub where yeah. i try and build it's just cranking out units building anything and you know that assists with the creation of more and more units defensive structures that kind of thing um and then some of the other places will focus on libraries will uh will focus on um you know different re- different resource specializations and mm. usually I find that to be an effective way of doing things. Um, obviously, that's quite um, that's quite slow going because some of the buildings that you have to prioritize in order to do that end up being many multiple turns. Um, and yeah. um, especially when you throw wonders um, in the mix there as well, um, you you do end because yeah. like there are certain wonders that are you know really great for certain strategies, um, and you do end up just waiting like a hundred, a hundred and fifty turns before yeah. you can actually do anything useful again. Um, but in the long haul, you know, as things get going and and those those specialized cities are up and running properly, things tend to go a lot faster for me. So I, first of all, established the most optimum place depending on what uh, I'm planning to do with it. But there's really positioning of where they are relative to food source or a resource like yeah. gold or coal or oil and that kind of thing. Um, and that sort of tends to uh, like steer one city to do certain thing. But the problem with actually creating a, a city that is responsible for creating a military, which is fine in itself, but the problem is that those units, they are still being supported by that city. So when they move out, because they're going to have to move out to defend other cities, to garrison other cities, they are still being supported by the city that built them. 
And this is a problem because you suddenly find that why am I running out of this? Oh, it's because they are still being beholden to the home city. As long as you actually understand that and then spread that sort of like the change their 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 dependence from once mm. provided that city can support them of course sometimes they can't the one they're going to there's no ability to support it but provided they can and i've found that kind of into in, uh, like interdependency of of the units to the cities and stuff quite difficult to manage and get my head round when i first played it like why can't i do these things why are they complaining what's going on why am i why can't they build anything all of a sudden what's going on turns out i had too many units too many miniature units out because i needed them to protect my borders and you know it's that 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 level of management and intricacy is quite i've thought at the time it's quite complex and quite uh unusual um for a game of this type it turns out it's not it's very common but at the time i was quite mar- i marveled at its its uh its depth so like just to to springboard off of what you were saying there chris um what i tended to do was build at least one or two you know basic infantry units to fortify each city within that city before moving on into the the specialization of that of that you know what that city would end up doing the reason why it felt like the capital made sense to be the military hub is because usually when things are kicking off you need to just build units as fast as you can and the capital city is always the most developed always has the most resource and always has the most space i wasn't necessarily always primed for military conflict because i kind of have the same you know internal conflict that leon was mentioning earlier of wanting to be good but ending up being bad um so being able to react fairly quickly to an invading force by just having a huge amount of units pour out of my capital city while the kind of local militia as it were Mm. kind of fend them off made the most sense to me but i appreciate yeah if you're going kind of completely down the military route it makes sense to kind of make sure that all your cities are bolstered so you avoid the problem that you were talking about yeah i'm talking about the sort of the the micromanagement side side of things i find that i'm compelled to irrigate and or mine every possible square around, yeah. uh, in and around every city that's that's yes. normal sane behavior right yes totally yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and uh, also during um conflict one has to destroy the enemy's um uh, lovely installations to make it worse for them as you starve them out of their city which is pretty grim but that's what the evil do. and cruel evil yeah. and cruel pillage always gonna do p p <laughs> <laughs> What about, uh, speaking of being cruel, what about uh, your government type situation? Again, like in my in my idyll, I want a democracy or maybe even communism. But um, but the some of the other options seem to be a bit more uh, uh, effective or easier to run in the short term. Turns out you can you can get a lot done with a benevolent dictatorship. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, again, this comes back to that earlier conversation we were having about the the playing the game to win the game, you know, the ludological approach or the kind of, yeah, the, the, the sort of the experimental social experiment RPG 
uh approach like for instance i looking at the tech tree i generally want absolutely nothing to do with anything spiritual or religious because i always just think <laughs> it's all nonsense and it only ever ends up in things being worse but of course the game kind of demands that you go through these phases of at least dabbling with these more these more spiritual or religious matters because yep. they also bring certain kinds of understanding with them they do mm. yeah it's it is it can it, like you leon i quibble i'd squirm but there is one cannot deny certain i'm going to use the word delicately advances or changes there you go that's better uh mm. that occurred yeah. that uh from that uh, realm of thinking so that's fine that long as that happens because you know Eventually, you end up with railroads. So, how, you know, <laughs> how can you go wrong? It's all part. It's part of human development. Yeah, um, yeah. you have to reach out and imagine yeah. a world beyond what you can, you know, see yeah. and hear and taste and touch, and and um, yeah. that's the beginnings of it. Mm. Um, I do think like religion is something that I think gets way more interesting and way more fascinating as the series, go series goes yes, on, especially with um, certain expansions for the later ones. Yeah. It becomes like a form of soft power that you just cannot ignore. Mm. Um, whereas here it feels a little bit, I don't know, it, it, it kind of rolls along with every other kind of... Um, it doesn't feel as fleshed out as like a separate system as it does later on. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we should yeah. say it's like it's in a very uh, non-denominational helicopterist view in, in the early games. Yeah. There's no, I would like to form the Catholic Church now, please. <laughs> no, but the, the, yeah, there was the Crusader unit. But let's move on. Sorry to say. <laughs> when does that when does that arrive? Is that in the second one? I think it might be in no. the second one. I know it's in the second one because I just played it this afternoon. Yeah, it, it is in the second one. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. Well, there you go. Um, and yeah, you mentioned wonders um, for the uninitiated. What the? What's the? What's the deal with wonders? They are obviously they are uh, related to real world things, such as the Great Pyramids, Great Lighthouse, things like this. What are they? Why are they worth the massive, massive time investment? Well, they offer you quite significant bonuses. So, like, just to cite an example, uh, the Colossus, which is obviously based on the Colossus of Rhodes, um, will give you one plus trade per trade square in the city yeah. um, until the development of electricity, which in the early game is absolutely, you know, a huge advantage. Um, and then, you know, as you get later on, you got stuff like the Apollo um space program which yeah. is like really essential for basically the the science victory um of the game um so yeah like it, you have to think of them as like bit like long-term investments that end up in huge leaps forward for your civilization yeah yeah i think for me the one of my favorites is pyramids pyramids is really quite i can't remember what, it, what the, the bonus it gives uh, it's a little bit overpowered. I think it's something to do with um, construction or reduces time mm. for construction. But it's also the the one most melancholy one is the Manhattan Project. Yeah. Uh, right. When when you yeah. when you trigger that one, everyone goes, "Really, you did that?" And all the yeah. other leaders go, "Oh, really? That's nice. That's really pleasant. That's really peaceful, isn't it?" <laughs> you know, yeah. I, it's I, just. 
extraordinary. It's one of the one. one of the one of the eternal truths about uh, Civ is that when people talk about it, they often end up talking about the inevitable end game. As yeah. I say, the 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 winning yeah. the game game, the the quickest way to win, if you can call it that, is to nuke everyone else. But at what price? We've got an interesting story about that later in the uh, in the Civ Two chat. I think that ties into the uh, the behaviour, the 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 much discussed behaviour of of the AI. Uh, without obviously, it's it's changed from version to version, but um, but I think there's a sense in some there's there's maybe some sort of Mandela effect going on with certain the ideas about what certain leaders are like, because I suspect they're all driven by very similar sets of numbers. I know they they're basically you know on a set of number based sliders and uh and and they act accordingly so some are more aggressive than others and and things like that but uh but i suppose any sense of uh vindictiveness that we might detect things like that that is entirely <laughs> in our own minds because these are just numbers reacting within a yeah for a fairly strict set of of parameters but it works like it again if, if it was pure i think this is where civ kind of trumped a lot of the earlier games although i'm sure there were many players of those games who also kind of learned to hate their ai opponents and things like that even maybe computer chess and stuff like this but um but it does it did help you know they have names their cities have names all that kind of stuff again makes me think of football manager the fact that they're not just little units they're not just little simple visuals they they have names and they have you live you live in and around the game world with them for a very long time uh and your relationship evolves with them over over lengthy periods as well so you could have a relationship with one civ civilization or leader that goes through all the different phases of a relationship <laughs> yeah yeah um i do think that after many plays you do get to see the boolean logic kicking in pretty quickly and like oh well if you just yeah, no them like this and you can just mm. like it's the full on the matrix you can just see the code um yeah but, um, that makes sense it does feel like i do despite that certainly in early years and when i was playing it i do i did give them personalities some were better than others and i did get personal gratification when i managed to quote unquote pacify um, a certain uh, antagonistic and rather aggressive um, rival civilization to the point mm. where they went, yes, sir, all right, thank you. Oh, oh dear, yes. Oh, uh, thank you for gracing, you, gracing us with your presence, sir. Oh, yes. All the tugging of furlock and stuff. I didn't want to have yeah. to dominate and subjugate you, but you made it very difficult for me not to. Indeed. Yeah. That was mm -hmm. my excuse every single time. It was a matter of national security. <laughs> As I said, yeah. it was a police action. Me... Conquering yeah. those three cities, I didn't have to do it. This is hurting me more than it's hurting you. Uh, <laughs> um, um, yeah, I, I mean, like the human brain wants to make patterns and and wants to make connections, See faces. even when there aren't <laughs> yeah. aren't ones there. And I, I, I do, you know, I'm the same way. Like I, I build personalities out of nothing. Um, but you yeah. know, it, I think it's a testament to 
to how much like fairly simple you know ai fairly simple programming can result like your imagination does a lot of the heavy lifting but why not you know mm, let yeah. the let fun, the imagination do that yeah 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 uh according to the civ wiki there is a considerable discussion over the ai used in the game in order to compensate for its limitations and provide a decent challenge to the human player it's known that the computer players are favoured with an in-game set of advantages, in particularly glaring undocumented occurrences of these advantages being revealed. Players often find themselves in the position of playing a game where they don't know the rules. Another contentious aspect of the game occurs in combat when a modern unit is fighting an obsolete or ancient unit. The ancient unit can sometimes win what most players consider to be an impossible battle. The most notorious of this is the infamous Spearman defeats tank phenomenon which ancient combat in which ancient combat units could defeat modern ones such as tanks and amazingly aircraft due to status modifiers such as terrain fortifications and veteran status combined with the slightly random weighting applied to each combat the common way of resolving this phenomenon is to consider the global nature of the real world in a world of advanced warfare technology a unit like the spearmen represents a poorly organized garrison armed with non-natively produced assault rifles and anti-tank grenade launchers. Likewise, a battleship attacking an ancient tribe could run aground during the manoeuvre, or an artillery unit could misfire or be subject to a surprise counter-attack within the encounter. So yeah, it's a nice idea, way of reframing it. It's not actually literally spearmen, it's rubbish soldiers compared to elite soldiers. Uh, which kind of, I, that does sort of work, but also that goes against the sort of the, the whole framework of discovering inventions or and having that knowledge um which in in the game is a huge part of the the gaming mechanics is actually share you know discovering and sharing the knowledge whereas in the in the real world yes i mean i suppose uh spies come into later iterations of civ don't they so you go and nick their nick their intelligence basically don't you mm, yeah <laughs> um while the game has been a target of far less criticism than its sister game, Colonization, there are some elements of civilization that are considered controversial because they lack neutrality. A topic of critique is the trivialization of historically important but sensitive topics such as religion and slavery. The games have managed to handle these aspects in a relatively generic manner. The assignment of traits to particular leaders has also been a source of some criticism. Some have questioned whether the game is simply trying to recreate history instead of allowing a player to imprint their own traits onto the developing game. Others have considered such trait assignments as racist since some of the traits are perceived to be applied to a general group of people instead of specific leaders. The Zulus, for example, are aggressive even when their civilization is hopelessly outmatched. The historian and anthropologist Matthew Capel has published an essay critical of the Civilization series. It suggests that the game uses unique American myths of progress and the frontier in culturally elitist fashion. That's uh, Civilization and its discontents American monomythic structure as historical simulacrum, simulacrum uh, from Popular Culture Review, Volume 13, Number 2, uh, which is heavy stuff but certainly something that has crossed my mind before that it it, it civ and I, and I, again i don't suppose there was any uh malice intended by by sid meyer but he is uh, an american man born in the 1950s i guess and so his worldview is that of 
that sort of experience that life experience and i think sometimes civilization is a bit like the you know when people talk about star trek the original series as being a you know a kind of a wonderful uh utopian view of the future of the world actually it's very much about america taking its values and imposing them upon the entire universe mm-hmm. yeah it, it, it there is like yeah a degree of indoctrination in the way all of this works right um and i think that the the other thing this is maybe not as um uh what's the word culturally insensitive but more just something that the game doesn't take into account with the way it's set up is how much of like a culture a you know an architectural vision all of that stuff is influenced by where a civilization grows and where a you know what resources that civilization has so the idea that you pick rome and then rome just crops up in the middle of nowhere that's like you know somewhere that's like mountainous and yeah. uh doesn't have any of the you know the sunshine or you know food or anything that Rome would have had mm. it it doesn't make sense because it's it's the other way around it's the terrain it's the resources yeah, that create yeah. the civilization yeah um and for the for it to just feel like you know Rome is inevitable no matter what happens uh America mm. is inevitable no matter what <laughs> happens is counter to what actual history shows us like there are you know there are ways in which you know certain civilizations certain ways of thinking would have been adopted by different groups of people or yeah. you know all of that jazz um that's i mean it's a huge topic we is, don't have yeah. time to talk no. about it here but <laughs> it, it, it it's just something that within the you know the abstraction construct of a game yeah. is probably impossible to account for but yes. is isn't you know yeah it's 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 something worth thinking about when we when we look at these kind of civ- civilization emu- emulating games that always is interesting uh they he decided to to make you get as far as alpha centauri the the nearest star rather than uh i guess the idea is that because no, normally when we in the real world talk about colonization we're still currently talking about mars uh for and even that is still you know some way away uh getting closer whether it's something we actually want to do or not but i suppose in the game the idea is that the whole solar system's a bust so we need to get to the nearest star where there's habitable uh, likely habitable planets uh, that's one way obviously the other way is simply wiping everybody else out or ca- well capturing all their cities not quite the same as actually killing everyone so you could just uh, simply yeah uh, take over grind them yes. into the dirt yeah. under under, <laughs> under your, under your boot, boot. Yeah. yeah or you can simply action. yeah <laughs> simply so yeah simply survive it's until national, time, national security <laughs> still so, survive until time runs out which uh, which would be um, my preferred option although no i don't know maybe going to alpha center is a good idea it depends. Oh, i like the space though i love i that. mean it's a great idea it's yeah. a wonderful it's a wonderful end game situation it's just whether like personally philosophically you actually you know feel that it's imperative that the human race lives on beyond the planet earth which i'm not sure i do but um but if you know for the again for the nature of the game for the for the i think of the win conditions that seems to me like the most desirable one 
Yeah, it's it's the most hopeful, right? It's yeah, the, yeah. It's going towards that Star Trek vision of the future yeah. that you were you were talking about. Mini skirts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think, like, ideally, like like in Star Trek, you you want to really have a civilization where all the problems are solved before we go into space, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, no, that's probably not what's. I mean. I, when whenever I've had had a you know this kind of victory, the Alpha Centauri. I'm not just talking about this game, mm, but mm. any of the you know the later civilizations where you you launch the space you know the space program proper yeah, yeah. And, and you win that way. Um, the world is a war torn nightmare. Yeah, <laughs> and right. So, um, so it's not it's maybe not as hopeful as I think it's intended to be. But it's it's a nice. I do find it to be like a nice optimistic note to to end a campaign on i think uh, climate change has become more of a factor in the civ games as the series has gone on as it's become yeah. more pertinent in the real world sorry chris i was just saying by the time that that ship's crewed though it's filled with people who were fighting like you know two seconds earlier and at least three turns beforehand so yeah yeah i think josh is right things ain't great on that ship <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, an arc full of uh culture warring yeah. Racists and yeah. and who, leftists and yeah. you know, fighting for, for thousands, all, thousands. All just years. on their phones. All, uh, yeah. yeah. Which yeah. are in their brains. Yeah. Anyway. Eating way too many avocados. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, conversions, ports and emulations. Well, we've already mentioned the Amiga, the original Amiga five hundred or one thousand and five hundred version uh, versions, then that AGA version with more colours. Cornelius Smith Smith. Sorry, from the forum says for a 12 year old me, the AGA version of Civ 1 was the initial reason why I wanted an Amiga. In 1996, when the Amiga had already pretty much breathed its terminal breath and the rest of my peers were knee deep in a PlayStation frenzy, this was absolutely in my wheelhouse. I vividly remember my first ever playthrough. I created a random Civ called the Gelf in a less than subtle nod to my then Red Dwarf fandom. I subsequently created my first city, failed to fortify it, and was promptly wiped out eight turns later by some marauding pink barbarian units. The game over sequence was a true masterstroke in forcing me to go back. We all probably know the sequence by now. Archaeologists discover the remains of your civilization, etc. and so on. But the line that stuck with me, Smithy shall return, followed by the suspiciously French-sounding Guelph national anthem blaring over my cheap speakers, this roused a sense of nationalism in my fallen Gelf empire that I knew must rise again. I was hooked. The most appealing parts of Civ for me were moment-to-moment mini-stories that would rise from virtue of each playthrough being completely different. Thanks for my overactive imagination embellishing these stories yet further, I can still remember the Great Battle of Gomping Lake, named so for the large body of water randomly in the middle of this massive continent, where I spent the best part of a century chasing down Mongolian cannons and lobbing wave after wave of militia at a sole phalanx to retake my capital, Gelfalonia. Or perhaps the incredible heroics of my last musketeer defeating a bombarding battleship in a moment of fluke RNG madness, only to be the subject of horrific genocide mere turns later, when the vengeful Indians unleashed rained nuclear fire across my homeland. How can I forget the thrill of crippling my economy in the name of a long and costly crusade to wipe out the Germans for having the temerity to occupy the same continent as me 
and for calling me feeble in a diplomatic exchange when demanding the secrets of ceremonial burial. Berlin subsequently went down in the flames of my vengeful chariots some one thousand years later, and the slight did not go unpunished. No other game for me has ever captured the sheer joy of conquest or decision-by-decision mechanics as much as this. It scratches that very hard-to-satisfy itch of simple yet complex, with the underlying anchor of never quite knowing what to expect, and with each session being truly one of a kind. One I still revisit regularly via emulation. I have played objectively more complex games than this since, but none have really ever hit that balance of strategy and whimsy that my inner 12-year-old still finds so fascinating. I did finally learn how to play the game properly instead of killing everything, but those early days will always be my favourite. I love the naming of the cities. Um, one of the things I used to do when I was playing it, because I loved 2000 AD, so mm-hmm. towards the later on, I would actually start renaming my cities, Mega City 1, one Mega City 2. two. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and also, I actually did have East Meg 1, East Meg 2, and stuff oh. like this. It was just it was just me of, like, you know, why not? It's just like they've become these massive megalopolis with... This is this is this is a bit of a self fulfilling prophecy that you're doing there, Chris. It's a bit worrying, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Allowing we we talked about this in our XCOM show some time ago, but allowing people to just name a few things in a game goes a long way, doesn't it? It does. So there was a in Japan there was a PC ninety eight version of Civ in ninety two developed by MPS Labs and published by Microprose Japan. The ST Windows version came along as Windows 3.1, possibly. Uh, I did play Matt... it. It's not great. Sorry to interject there, but it's actually, it comes across as this, like, this is just someone sort of superimposed it onto an Excel spreadsheet, which they probably have, but it just feels <laughs> like that way too much. It feels like you're playing Minesweeper. It's just awful. It doesn't feel I thought it was same. just the DOS version, but for Windows, no, isn't it? No, no, it's, no, oh, it's okay. completely con- different interfaces or windows right. up. You can move the windows around and it, mm. it's all like very, very sophisticated, but it does turn it into a, it feels like yeah. WordStar. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. You know, it just really strips it of its charm and turns it into an application rather than a, a game. Sadly. Okay. Well, all the versions are on Abandonware, but you can choose the MS-DOS version or the Amiga 1200 version if you want, uh, depending on which emulator you want to set up. There's a Mac version, of course, which I guess, I don't know, is based on the DOS version or the Windows version. But um, yeah, there we go. There was that Super Nintendo version. I think it only came out in Japan. Pretty sure I've never seen a, a Western cart of it. Maybe it came out in America, but I, I don't. I think the the videos I've seen of people playing it, it's all had Japanese scripts. So 1995, developed by a Microprose team and published by Koei. Uh, yeah, it looks surprisingly good, actually. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, they, they, you know, managed to, Cram all the controls onto the six buttons or eight buttons if you include start and select. And um, yeah, it seems to run pretty swiftly and slickly. There was a PS1 and a Saturn version, very similar to one another, both developed by MPS Labs and released in Japan by Asmic Corporation. Again, I don't believe they came out in the West, certainly not in Europe. Uh, There was an N-Gage version in 2006, which actually... Funnily enough, it was the final official release for the N-Gage, developed by Griffondale Studios and published by Atari. Uh, I don't know how successfully it brought the formula over, but, you know, 
probably no one's going to play the N-Gage version of Civ. Who's listening to this? Civnet. Civnet was released in 1995 and is a remake of the original Civ with added multiplayer and an in-game world editor. Custom leaders and civilizations, simultaneous turns, improved graphics and sound, and support for Windows 95 and 3.1. Gameplay was almost identical to the original game. There were several methods of multiplayer, including LAN, primitive internet play, hot seat modem, and direct serial link. So that if you're going to play a Windows version, that's probably the one to go for. Don't know why I bought this. <laughs> I, I did. I bought this for. Don't know. Don't know why I did, but I did, and uh, I don't even remember ever installing it. Uh, maybe I did. I must have done. Um, but I do remember it coming in this big white box with red letters with Civnet on the front. Mm. And I was nice manual. Yeah, and I was just yeah, I was getting into like online gaming with my modem back in the day, and I like the idea of turn-based game rather than real time. Yeah, that's yeah, much easier on the old phone bill. Um, yes. So yeah, but I never actually delved into that um, side of things. I just got involved with uh, Warcraft Two instead. So yeah, um, yeah, I'd, it's perfectly serviceable. Like I said, it just lacked the charm because I think this is the similar sort of Windows version I was playing on. Because um, I've got the Civ Chronicles, which is a collection of Civ mm, games yeah. from Civ One right through Civ Four, and uh, yeah, it's uh, I just didn't really didn't gel with it, but it's fine. But mm. and I was five. You were five. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. All right, we get it, Josh. <laughs> Sid Meier's Civilization Two, the working title of which. I guess in a nod to SimCity, was uh, Civilization 2000. They didn't stick with that. This was developed by Microprose, and the later Test of Time version was by Cool Hand Interactive. Activision published it on the PS1, but of course Microprose published the PC version, as you'd expect. Sid Meier had virtually nothing to do with the game, but he was a brand by this point, so... Uh, so his name went on the box regardless, as it has done on every version since. The designer was Brian Reynolds, who was previously known for Rex Nebula and the Cosmic Gender Bender. Yes, that's a real game. And Dragon Sphere and also Colonization, the former uh, and somewhat problematic spin-off to Civ 1. Asked about Sid Meier's involvement in the project, Reynolds said, We sat down and brainstormed about it and hashed out ideas, but that's about it. Uh, Maya commented, Civilization greatly favoured the military approach to achieving victory. We've now adjusted the balance to make trade and diplomacy a more integral part of the game. I guess that was him being interviewed about Civ 2 because his name was on the box, even though he didn't do a lot on the game. Came out in February 1996 in America, some point a little later in Europe. And there was a a nice uh, multiplayer gold edition in 1998, which bundled both expansion packs, info coming up, and added options for networked and hot seat play and tweaked AI. Apparently the tweaked AI made it massively more warlike and aggressive in this version. Uh, but I think you can probably go in and edit it anyway. So, uh, yeah, there were two Civ 2 expansions conflicts in civilization with 20 new scenarios 12 created by the game makers and eight best of the net fan created ones and there was also civ 2 fantastic worlds actually called civ 2 because a legal dispute arising from sid Meier's departure prevented use of the full word civilization 
The European version used the full word, though. It also added new scenarios that had many unique settings, such as one scenario dealing with colonization of Mars and one scenario called Midgard that had elven, goblin, merman and other civilizations from fantasy. There are also some scenarios based on other Microprose games, such as XCOM, Master of Orion and Master of Magic Junior scenario. On July 31st, 1999, the Test of Time version came out, which is essentially a, a remake of Civ 2 that was released to compete with the competing <laughs> Sid Meier game, uh, Alpha Centauri, where he'd gone off to form Firaxis Games and released Alpha Centauri through uh, EA or Aspire on the Mac and Loki or Loki on Linux. I don't know why they needed three publishers for three operating systems, but there you go. Uh, the Mac version of Civ 2 followed in 1997 and that PS1 version was 1998 in America and 1999 in Europe, which is when I picked it up. The re average review score for Civ 2 was even more positive than for the original Civ 93% and Jeff Briggs of Firaxis, uh, Jeff Briggs who worked on this one went on to join Sid Meier at Firaxis later, estimated that Civ 2 had sold about 3 million copies, so about twice as many as Civ 1. And I guess that's partly because when it first came out it was primarily a CD game, possibly only a CD game, and CD burners weren't quite so commonplace in the mid-90s as they became a little later, so I guess I guess this sold more copies than it might have done otherwise. I don't know. Uh, Brian Reynolds and his co-workers were initially reluctant to make any changes to the original game's design as they didn't want to be known as the guys who screwed up civilization, according to Moby Games. So some of the changes that they did make, and yes, the game really is very similar. It's uh, There are a few changes and tweaks, but fundamentals are, as we say, pretty much all in place uh, they change the graphics to an isometric viewpoint it has uh, clickable links which the original didn't have and movable windows uh, it has uh, borders visible borders to cities advanced ai whatever that means and improved diplomacy options taking away the rng 100 sided dice rolls and replacing them with firepower and hit points New, some new civilizations up to 21 from 14 new total of 28 wonders and compared to the first game where the cpu was just granted them randomly at various points the cpu actually has to play the game and earn their wonders adds a new deity difficulty level it's got the throne room furnishings and upgrades so chris can feel special and pampered by his people and there's that uh, cheat mode toggle, which allows you to comprehensively tweak and mod the game to your desire. Yeah, so I think going back to Civ 2, it's just, uh, even though it's 25 years old, it's not exactly a spring chicken. Uh, it's just got that uh, that sense that, yeah, it's just got that, that, that little bit more quality of life, modern polish about it. Slightly easier proposition, I would say, than the MS-DOS Civ 1. Definitely. I was playing it earlier today. The original Civ 2 rather than this also. No, I played both versions. Must confess I preferred the cleaner interface of Civ 2 rather than Test of Time. Right. Uh, I, I found this a bit muddy and some of the mm -hmm. icons were overdone. 
and uh, I think there's like a, a bit of a try-hard issues going on here. Uh, yeah. But I did like the underlying engine stuff that fixed like the diplomacy and the firepower and the hit points and all the stuff you listed down. I did like a lot of that. That was really good. But I was just, I, did, I felt that it was uh, a little bit too late 1990s for my liking. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Josh, how did you find this one after going back to Civ 1? You went back to Civ 2. Yeah, yeah. I I think this is where, you know, not fully, but the the personality stuff that I was talking about starts to be injected in. I think that isometric view is much better for making you... Because it literally looked like a piece of paper with board game pieces in the first one, whereas it feels a little bit more like um a more detailed model if that makes sense more you know um it, there's a more of an artistic vision yeah. to the way things are laid out um and yeah that like we're we're not you know we're definitely not to the point where we're actually getting like fully animated um you know units on on the battlefield and stuff like that but everything from you know the UI and and um we'll talk about the advices yes. in a bit but um uh all of that just feels a little bit more considered just a little bit more slick just a little bit more professional to the point where this is a much more um an inviting experience and of course you've you've already covered the um the actual combat um i i think that is a big shift um yeah. making the combat less of a dice roll and and more strategic was a big improvement yeah definitely Cool, cool. So yes, the <laughs> the CD era yeah, brought yeah. with it yeah. the, uh, the 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 opportunity <laughs> for FMV. And I have to say that this is these are some of my strongest memories from playing Civ Two. Yeah, as much as I played the game for hours and hours and loved the strategy and the and the refinements and all that, the as as cheesy and naff and mid nineties as it is was memorable the advisors so yeah we should say basically they got five actors uh, none of whom had that many credits if any and uh, some of whom such as frank wagner who played the uh, elvis like attitude advisor this was of <laughs> this this is kind of tragic uh, had one two three four five six seven imdb credits before civ 2 including appearances on uh, a TV movie, a uh, TJ Hooker episode, a Riptide episode, uh, the movie Alien Nation, and then Civ 2, and that was that. <laughs> that, was the, <laughs> that was the end oh, of that. Dear. Uh, Spencer Hum, meanwhile, who played the trade advisor, uh, is, I found on Twitter, still going, comedian. Um, yeah, not a huge following, but, uh, but still out there as an entertainer. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. But yeah, so these are, they, they wear different costumes depending on the era in which you visit them. Uh, they deliver lines to camera in grainy FMV and uh, and it's a thing. Yeah, um, for me, hats off to Brad Howard, the, the military <laughs> advisor. He was my personal favourite. His one um, and only credit, I think. He um, <laughs> he, he He acted. Everyone, he was. Oh yeah, he was projecting his voice. He was breathing. It was all there, sir. It was just, oh, darling, I am a military advisor. 
And uh, he's a bit more American than that, as I recall. I know, but I just, I'm just in the actor. He I know what you mean. Actor. Yeah. And uh, basically, think of the 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 postman and young ones episode. And you know what I'm talking about, right? Just so funny, and he could tell he was hamming it up. He had to because some of the lines he had to deliver was absurd, but they were funny, and it was most of the time worth. Were they generally helpful? Well, I think I think it's very telling that as the series goes on, the advisors take more of a subtle role right. um, in proceedings. Um, literally, you know, in Civilization Five and Six, they're basically like you know text notifications mm. at a certain point um in rev they're like I, they speak simlish don't they the kind of thing going on they they're kind of like big plasticine animated characters which i think that's like the most like per, you know if you're going to give them personality mm. i think that's the way to do it this i mean like you said they're incredibly memorable and they are entertaining <laughs> and as as a historical artifact i find this absolutely right. fascinating yeah, it is, yeah. but as a, an intrusion on gameplay it is a little bit much i think it's on you know if you were to have this this on and operating for multiple playthroughs i can see how it would begin to get grating yes um but yeah as you say I mean, like, one thing I will say is I think most of the actors know exactly what the material is and what is required of them, yeah. if that makes sense. They're not, you know... I mean, this is a point in time where, you know, serious video game voice acting um, wasn't really a thing. So they were always going to either be, you know, uh, you know, phoned in performances or you know going all the way yeah. but i'm just glad that they you know pretty much all five of them like went all in and and hammed it up and it and and they yeah as i said as as we've all said like it is funny but i am glad <laughs> i'm glad that this slowly slowly got um uh you know uh dialed down as the series went on as you'd expect listener you don't yeah. have to fire up the game to see these they are available on youtube totally, totally. i do like the anarchy as well that's quite fun to watch them arguing amongst themselves when you have no government so that's quite fun um also <laughs> you haven't uh well one thing we can't not uh, mention is the wonders uh you do get a little nice little video like links yeah yeah like video of one of the wonders in like, style in yes. style that's what i was thinking of yes yeah and that's lovely i did like that very much of yes. its time you're right it's like oh we can put video on to cd now i don't know let's couple something together i actually thought yeah i actually mm. thought that was quite helpful in bringing because you know not i'm not being a historian uh, i didn't you know some of the sort of items in in the game world i was less familiar with so it was nice to see a little bit of footage of them to actually you know bring home what what was going on yeah i was i was up for that one thing that came to mind when putting the show together was I, I didn't realize how long ago it was, but I I did have in the back of my mind this news story. It's actually 2012. I thought it was way more recently, but I did some searching and I couldn't find anything more recent on Civ 2 that was in the news. But yeah, 10 years ago, nearly June 2012 in PC Gamer and a few other outlets as well, there was a, a story Headline, 10-year game of Civ 2 results in hellish nightmare planet, permanent nuclear war. 
And this was uh, all about Redditor Lycerius. I assume it's pronounced. How would a Civ 2 map look after running for nearly 10 years? Redditor Lycerius has found out and has posted the current status of humanity in the year 3991 AD. Things are not good. The world is a hellish nightmare of suffering and devastation, says Lycerius. There are three remaining super nations in the year 3991, each competing for the scant resources left on the planet after dozens of nuclear wars have rendered vast swathes of the world uninhabitable wastelands. A 1700-year war has wiped out 90% of the world's population in a nuclear holocaust that simply has no end. The polar ice caps have melted and reformed 20 times. Land that isn't rock or mountain has been reduced to festering, irradiated swampland. Every nation's resources are devoted to pumping tanks to the front line where they bash out an everlasting stalemate and are occasionally nuked. Large cities are long gone. Every time one gets too big, an enemy's, enemy nation's spy sneaks in a nuke and boom. The three nations, the Celts, Vikings and Americans, are poised to continue the war forever. The military stalemate is airtight. The post-late game in Civ 2 is perfectly balanced because all remaining nations already have all the technologies, so there is no advantage, Lycerius explains. There are so many units at once on the map that you could lose 20 tank units and not have your lines dented because you have a constant stream moving to the front. This also means that cities are not only tiny towns full of starving people, but that you can never improve the city. So you want a granary so you can eat? Sorry, I have to build another tank instead. Maybe next time. Lycerius has been dipping into the game every so often for almost a decade and is determined to break the stalemate that's emerged. He wants to bring back farmland and start restoring his cities. As such, he's been taking some advice from the hundreds and hundreds of comments that have been posted in response. Diplomacy's failed in this world, Donut EF declares. You've got to hit them hard and take over the world for the greater good. Then you can spend turn upon turn under the blanket of enforced religious peace, fixing it with hundreds of engineers, if you like. It's for the greater good, he adds. <laughs> Fundamentalism is what you need, suggests Snark. Fanatics are cheap as anything. Let the enemy nuke them. One nuclear missile costs far more than the fanatics it might kill. It's about making him spend his resources killing chaff while you protect the interior where you're building the army that will win the war. Civilization is brilliant. Have you been playing any huge long-form games? How did they turn out? <laughs> uh, I Actually, I feel like maybe there was more follow-up to that story. I don't know if, uh, if Lycerius' game ever ended. Uh, extraordinary stuff. But just uh, as well as being uh, colourful and entertaining, also just a great sort of example of how involved and deep Civ can become. Just to note, the German translation of Civ 2 is almost legendary, as it's a total disaster. <laughs> it was done by an American employee of Microprose, whose sole qualification had been that he spent a couple of years in Germany. So Sidmer's Alpha Centauri came in 1999. We're not covering that game officially, but it's worth mentioning in this one because it is kind of officially like the real canonical, the next Civ. If you consider Civ 2 a kind of polished remake of the first game, Alpha Centauri is the game that moves the story on and, and Sid Meier's canonical sequel. Um, and yeah, beloved by many. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very yes. good. 
and that's got its own sequel as well, I believe. Or well, sp- spiritual, spiritual sequel, because yeah. um, Civilization Beyond Earth that's is right. basically yeah. Alpha yeah. Centauri. Yes, uh, much more meat for us to chew on some day in the future. Now, yeah, this is where it got a little complicated. Uh, Avalon Hill's Advanced Civilization came out in 1996 for PC and Mac, MS-DOS and Mac OS, by Avalon Hill. The game was partially inspired by the Avalon Hill board game Civilization and later Advanced Civilization. When Sid Meier's version became so popular, Avalon Hill actually came out with Advanced Civilization for the PC. Avalon Hill then sued Hasbro, who were the then owners of Microprose for copyright infringement, infringement. Activision got involved as they wanted to license the Avalon Hill version for their civilization Call to Power. Microprose then went on, with Hasbro's help, to buy out the original inventors of the Avalon Hill version, thus negating the suit. Finally, they settled out of court. Activision gets the license to make Call to Power. Microprose keeps the computer game name Civilization, and Avalon Hill gets nothing, according to Moby Games. So that's that story. And yes, I remember when Civilization Call to Power came out. This was the Activision game. And uh, 1999, Windows, Linux and Linux and Mac. And uh, the reviews were really mediocre because, yeah, I think, I mean, I can't say because I haven't played it. But uh, yeah, it was um, a, a couple of, I think Edge gave it a rather glowing review. But a lot of other places were very much uh, fours, fives and sixes out of tens saying that the game just simply didn't capture what made Civs 1 and 2 so special and just go and play Alpha Centauri instead seemed to be the the mantra. I remember seeing it in stores. I think I might have got it. I can't remember, though. Um, yeah, but it probably says something. <laughs> yeah, it says a lot, doesn't it, really? But I do remember there was a lot of excitement about it because, you're like, oh, look, it's, it's this civilization. Or is this... Why is there another one? There's two. I'm mean, we're confused. Yeah. You know, it's... it was very much the uh, the champ manager, football manager situation yeah. all over again. Yeah. Uh, but yes, oh, it's it's also uh, abandonware, call to power, and free to download and play. So you know, if you want to do the research, it's out there. I didn't play it because I heard it's not very good. But yes, the one I have been playing is FreeCiv. Came out originally in 1996, but they're still updating it with stable versions. It, apparently, it wasn't that stable at first, but it's based on now based on. I guess it wasn't at the time, but it's based on the test of time code or game uh, mechanics and functions. Uh, it's uh, it's very slick, you know, but it's very very plain and dry by Civ standards. As as I said, it doesn't have any of the sort of animation or or anything like that but it does use all the the sort of the the text and stuff of the 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 uh when you're dealing with the enemy leaders and so on you still get the same sort of dialogues and things like that so it's not completely devoid and it does have the sort of civ 2 style isometric graphics um so yeah it's it's i'd say i mean personally i'm i'm kind of itching to go back to uh civ 6 on the switch or or civ rev on the xbox but but it's pretty cool you can just you know it's it's a very undemanding client as you'd expect you can just stick it on your pc and it also has ridiculous amounts of customization options you can have an insane number of enemy civilizations and uh you can play it online and everything like that there was an earlier or actually it was later but it seems to be more abandoned 
a freeware one called C Evo as well from 99. But um, the website on that looks ancient, so I'm not touching it. <laughs> <laughs> In the thriller, the movie, erotic thriller, I think, Sliver, with Sharon Stone and William Baldwin, you can spot a poster on the wall to the secret room of the bad guy in the movie, a close-up of the front cover of Sidmer's Civilization. It's a good reason to bust that film out again, right? Totally. And then, of course, it had to happen. The board game of the video game that may have been inspired by the board game, coming full circle from its roots in 1980, the Heartland Trefoil Avalon Hill board game of Civilization 2002 saw the release of Sid Meier's Civilization, the board game from Eagle Games. Chris, have you ever tried the first incarnation of the Civ board game? There this, is, well, I mean, this, this, the first, you know. The there's, second, there's three with me. played. There's this one. Yes. Which is much more um, sedate and plodding than the one in 2010, which is mm -hmm. Fantasy Flight, which right. has a really problematic combat system, which is over -com too convoluted, which they released an expansion for that oh. game to fix, okay. um, which they did a pretty good job. But then they released another one, and it's still Fantasy Flight, which is way better, called A New Dawn, which is based on Civ Six, and that's really oh, okay. good. I really right. like that one. So, so that's uh, the one to play if that's you the one like your analog game. If you like right, your analog okay. games, that's the one. It's a really mm. they, they released an expansion for that as well. It's really good. How many players does it support, and how long does it take? Uh, it's it's about two to three hours that one, and it okay. supports up to six players. Uh, five, five with the five. expansion, okay. but typically four. Wonderful sort of system of uh, card deck building system. It's really cool. Really good game. I like it a lot. Really good right. tech tree system. Very, very innovative. Excellent. Mm. And some three-word reviews. Follow us on Twitter at Kane and Rince. Mickey says, <laughs> Bloody Barbarian Hordes. Numerio Sarja says, Beginnings of Addiction. Alastair Hendry says, Where was Scotland? I think they were the Barbarian Hordes. I'm sorry to say. There goes our Scottish listeners. Uh, one credit classics. Uh, brackets, Ben. Photocopying and piracy. Luke says, fear nuclear Gandhi. Megadirt says, my mum's favourite. Steve Chambers says, who needs sleep? And Deadbeat Punk says, one more turn. Right. Well, it just remains for us to sum up now. I think maybe, well, I don't, I can't speak for, for you two. I'm, uh, I'm thinking it's okay if we recommend another version of Civ that we didn't officially cover in the show, if that's what we want to do, uh, which it probably is for me. Uh, so, yes, uh, I have some a certain amount of nostalgia for the original Civ, and it's really cool that you can just play it and download it for free and, you know, enjoy enjoy it pretty much exactly as it was back in the day, whichever flavour version you want to play. But yeah, I think it's fair to say that as much as it was a an innovative title and one that really moved things forwards for, for computer gaming and strategy gaming and was, yeah, just extraordinarily compelling in its own right, I think even with the second game, there were quite a lot of refinements made and, and certain, yeah, quality of life improvements that you would, uh, it would mean that, Civ 2 would now be the, the kind of easier proposition to play 
over Civ 1. So yeah, worth definitely worth like maybe just watching the intro of Civ 1 just to get the vibe of that uh, super early 90s kind of PC kind of gaming. Just have a look, see what it looked like. But then in terms of actually playing Civ, really, I think you could start at Civ 2 to get into it. Because uh, in some ways, although the games have probably got more accessible in some ways, especially with Civ Rev, uh, there's a kind of the screens a lot busier nowadays. There's a lot more kind of happening and it's more accessible. Some of the more recent incarnations in some ways, but actually Civ 2 kind of, I think, is, is a very nice stripped back version that still has all the, yeah, the, the, the core of amazingly one more turnish civ gameplay so yeah i would actually recommend maybe playing free civ although as i say it could it could be a little dry because it takes away a lot of the the sort of the, just those little bells and whistles that make the game a little a little more palatable um as i say civ rev i think uh, which you can play on a huge number of formats which was the kind of consoleized version from about 10 years ago is well worth a look but yeah given that civ 6 is now often well it was given away on epic i've seen it very cheap on various e-shops and it's available on on most formats if you actually like the idea of a game like this then um i don't i don't think you'd probably go terribly wrong by by starting at the most recent incarnation but it's been really fun to go back and um yeah i don't think i'll be uh don't think I'll be deleting FreeSiv off my hard drive because I need to have one more go. And Josh, yeah, I, I think the main thing I got out of being part of this issue is is realizing how much of what I love about Civ is present in that first game and second game, um, and that was that was fascinating. But as games to go back to as like genuine pieces of entertainment rather than historical education i don't know that i can recommend them especially knowing where the series ends up and and um you know the way they develop certain systems that are just underdeveloped here um uh, for my money um in terms of balancing both accessibility and um having a lot of the meaty stuff that I love about Civilization, I do think that Switch version of Civilization Six mm. is really excellent. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit more, you know, it does bombard you with a bit more information than Civ, Civ Rev does, but it's a really great port and, and does some amazing um, menu design and controller design to make it work for mm. that platform. Um but in terms of the the civilization that's still my favorite, I think Civ Five, but specifically Civ Five with all the expansions, which back in the day would have cost you an yeah. arm and a leg, but these days you could probably pick up the whole thing oh. for like fifteen quid, yeah. if that yeah. um, uh, is is absolutely worthwhile. I just think in terms of the combat design, in terms of the way they handle. Um, policies, cities, all of that stuff. Um, I still think it 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 was a personal peak for me. Um, there are things that Civ Six does that I think are interesting, kind of deviations from the formula um, that are fun. 
but Civ Five with um, all the expansions is like is like what these games, you know, these early games are trying to be. It's like the perfection of that particular formula before Six starts throwing in some curveballs. Um, so yeah, lovely. Thank you, Josh. Let's conclude with Chris. I. Hmm. I marvel at its legacy. What it did, what it started. Yes, there are other games at the time that were doing similar things, but not quite as well. And I marvel at it was only two people. And only, you know, we were mentioning earlier that, oh, yeah, you know, it looks like, you know, placeholder art and that kind of thing, and me whining about the weird font. But on reflection, that's pretty. A trite thing to say, considering the extraordinary thing it turned out to be. Whether it was by design or by accident, I think it's the latter. That it turned into such an extraordinary thing that's now become part of video game culture, and indeed the wider culture. And there's a sixth one. Six. There's very few games from the 90s that you can boast that are still going, that are now up to number six with a plethora of expansions. And this is one of them. And it deserves it. It says a lot about what it done, what it did, and what it continues to do. Going back to what Josh said about should it go back, you know, speaking to someone who does play these things with the original hardware, it doesn't matter. It's what I do. Uh, and I've been playing on my Windows XP machine. And it's fine. But, it, you know, the experience is definitely the kernel, the core concept of the game. But you see so many holes. And when I was playing Civ 2, I thought, if only I could do a religious conversion of this city. Or if only I could do, you know, all the stuff I do on from 4 and 5 and 6. Like, can't do it here. It's not there. And it's frustrating for me. So as much as important these games are, I wouldn't really sort of recommend one goes back to them i do really think that there has been a significant and positive advancement in this genre of game uh, whether it be the 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 grand strategy games of universal europe universalis or 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 um crusader kings 3 like those kind of games or indeed stellaris and then you look at um the civ 6 and stuff like that they've progressed they have actually progressed positively they haven't it's not just bloat uh some would argue there is but i don't think that you know you can stream like what have you you can cater it and manipulate it to to your own what the kind of game you want and we've got a lot to, to thank for civ 2 for that because civ 2 actually has in the, in the menu cheat <laughs> select cheat and basically you change help yourself, the, help yourself yeah. off you go off you pop make, sandbox make, it's more of a yeah, yeah it cheats a bit of a misnomer i think it is, it's yeah. really just you know edit yeah. edit uh, yeah. sandbox play yeah yeah do, do you want barbarians or not if not no do you want yeah, <laughs> yeah. so yeah it's um it, it, so for me this is a dis- discussion about a game of a legacy uh, of a thing that happened and it started and you can have a look and play if you like and yes Civ 2 is definitely palatable and playable absolutely but honestly if you want a really good 4x grand strategy game i would recommend the other games i just mentioned earlier really not just civ 6 but the others as well they've come along so come far 
and uh, we can't ignore that. And uh, speaking to someone who is a very much a student of game design, even to this day, um, I do appreciate what the work has been done since the release of Civ Two and One. And uh, so, but uh, yeah, they're a thing, but not a thing for now. Yeah, it'd be interesting if we do go forward. I don't know whether we will or not, but if we do cover any further instalments of Civilization or its offshoots, it's very much one of those series, like pretty much every video game series, where you will always see the raging arguments between the different people of which is, quote, the best version. Um, and yes, there's a lot of advocates for different numbered ones and others that will swear that that version was ruined because they took this out or added that and so on and so forth. But um, yeah, I played a little Civ 3 not so long ago and found that to still work as well. So anyway, you can buy all of those, all the three and beyond installments for, as we say, not very much money. Um, if you've never played a Civ and you've listened to this show, well, congratulations. I hope it was interesting. So it remains for me, Leon, to thank Chris, Josh, Editor Jay, as well as our correspondents, and of course to you for listening. And next time, in issue 486, Artyom looks to escape the post-apocalyptic underground in Metro Exodus. Thank you.